everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. I'm really excited this week because we have a new sponsor on the show, Zendium Toothpaste. I was so excited when I discovered it and I cannot wait to tell you about it. So Zendium Toothpaste is different because it actually strengthens your mouth's natural defences. So... In our mouths, our greatest defense system is actually the oral microbiome. You know, just like our gut microbiome, which is a delicate ecosystem of good and bad bacteria. So Zendium uses natural enzymes and proteins to boost the good bacteria in the mouth, which is why it's so different, working like prebiotic, which protects your mouth naturally and reduces the bad bacteria responsible for dental problems. They have a kids and an adult range, both free from SLS, and Zendium are kindly offering 20% off for Motherkind listeners. So all you need to do is head to zendium.co.uk, that's zendium.co.uk, and pop Motherkind in at the checkout and you will get 20% off. So thank you so much to Zendium for the offer and for supporting me to create a weekly show like this one. This episode is also supported by Tony's. You might have seen the Tony boxes. They are the very cool audio player for kids. So it's a five inch soft cube that is basically indestructible, which we all know is very important. It's also totally screen free and cable free. What I love about my Tony box is that for Jessie's quiet time after dinner, instead of TV, she listens to a story just by popping a little Tony's figure that she chooses on top and the story starts. Then when I've put her to bed, I play her me singing to her, poor thing, that I've recorded into the box. It's amazing. And she has been dropping off so well listening to her Tony box. I think this is the perfect Christmas present. So head to the website, www.tonies.com. Have a look at them. The last orders for Christmas is on the 13th of December, but then you can order from Amazon and get it right up to the last minute if you're anything like me. So head to tonies.com, have a look and let me know what you think of it because I absolutely love mine. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the Motherkind podcast with me, your host, Zoe Blasky. This week's guest says the way we think about mental health as separate from physical health is flawed. Kimberly Wilson says instead we need to think about whole body mental health. Kimberly is a chartered psychologist. She is an author of the brilliant book, How to Build a Healthy Brain, and she works in private practice in central London. She has such an incredible list of credentials. She is also a governor of the Tavistock and Portman NHS Mental Health Trust, and she formally led the therapy service at Holloway Prison, which at the time was Europe's largest women's prison. She also is a former finalist on the Great British Bake Off, an award-winning food producer, and has a degree in nutrition. I loved this episode. It is incredibly powerful. I think you are all going to take so much away from what Kimberly shares 
We start off by talking about the impact of stress on the brain and how it is long-term stress, which is the enemy of brain health. We dig into depression and anxiety and Kimberly shares why often we talk about and look at depression in an unhelpful way. Kimberly shares how important looking after our brains is and really practical ways that we can look after our brain health. We get into a fascinating conversation. I think you can hear my passion about feelings and emotions and how suppressing our feelings can lead to physical symptoms. We talk about guilt and Kimberly shares a really powerful screener question to help you understand whether your guilt is right-sized or whether surprise surprise you might be being hard on yourself and at the end of the episode Kimberly shares about resilience and how to strengthen that muscle which allows you to bounce back from hard things and hard times which I think we all need right now I absolutely loved this episode please do let me know what you thought over on Instagram and if you feel moved to please do leave a review and perhaps share it with a friend here it is Welcome, Kimberly. I am so excited to be chatting to you this morning. I've been stalking you for a while. I adore your book, but I think now, you know, we were just chatting about it before we started recording, you know, in this second lockdown in the winter, I don't think there's a better time for us to be having this conversation. Something that I love so much about your work is the urgency and I can feel the passion and you know you open the book saying that we are in a global mental and brain health crisis and that was before mm-hmm. you've written that before everything okay. was now so tell us now like how has what's going on with this pandemic moved your passion on how are you feeling now about that crisis I've had to change the title of a lot of my talks now to the other global health crisis because we're right in the middle of two now. So I absolutely do believe, and, you know, sometimes people say it for dramatic license and it's just something to say, absolutely do believe that we are in a brain health crisis that global IQs, after having gone up for years and years and years, decade upon decade, have been in decline in the 1970s. Rates of childhood psychological distress and suicidal ideation are now at a 19-year high. And the leading cause of death in the UK isn't cancer, isn't heart disease, it's Alzheimer's. The leading cause of global health burden isn't cancer or AIDS, it's depression. So our leading causes of death and disability are about the brain and our leading indices of brain health, like things like IQ, are in decline. Um, children, brains should be the healthiest while they're in development, are now suffering more than ever before. So it's a huge problem. And what the pandemic has done is to add additional chronic stress to brains that are already under pressure. I talk about the three A's with my audience. So the anxiety, the additional attention and the adjustment. So our brains hate uncertainty. We don't like it. It's the worst. Where there are gaps in information, your brain hates uncertainty so much that it will try to just make information up. It will just leap to conclusions. It will just fill in the gaps with all sorts of ideas just so that you don't feel uncertain about anything and obviously certainly in the UK since March we've been in chronic 
uncertainty and it turns up our stress hormones it turns up our feelings of unsafety and whilst I do have a fundamental belief in human resilience it's a long time to feel stressed and it's a long time to feel unsure and I'm increasingly concerned particularly as we head into winter about how people are going to cope psychologically with lockdown and the additional pressures of the pandemic. I can hear the passion and I share your passion and I share your concerns particularly for parents. I think this time has been hard on everyone but I think for parents who lost all of that childcare for Mm. the four months the stresses of that I think we'll be recovering from for a long time. There's so much focus isn't there particularly with coronavirus on the physical health and I think there's so much focus on the NHS as a physical health provision but there's a huge disconnect and I can hear your passion and I think you can hear mine that the statistics are telling us that the challenges we face in our society particularly now are linked to mental and brain health and yet all of the policies and the funding seem to be going towards physical health two things because you've actually worked on the front line I've experienced the front line with family members who've gone into psychiatric care and I've experienced it I've not been in it firsthand and I've seen the underfunding it's horrific it is horrific you've worked in it so I can't wait to hear your experience there And the second thing linked to that question is, we know this now, it's all in your book, the mind-body link. Why are we still, in this day and age, separating them? It's crazy. Oh, I laugh. Otherwise, I'd be just like crying in despair. Yeah, they're really related questions, so I might try to answer them together. And I think we being the West predominantly, and Britain particularly. And I think there are lots of social and cultural reasons behind this. So a broad reason that we don't pay as much attention to the brain as we do, say, the body is simply because it's out of sight and out of mind. So when we're thinking about health, when your doctor's talking about health, if you're thinking about your physical health, you can pinch an inch or you can see the changes in your body. You can see and feel when things aren't right. Maybe you've got a skin rash and that's what tells you that you might have an allergy or a reaction to something, or maybe you get an ear infection and it's visible and physical and palpable and it feels just much more tangible than your mental health because your brain is in your skull. You can't see it. You don't really know what's going on. And so we just don't think about it very much. Is that right, though? Because I can't see my heart and I don't know much about my heart, but I see campaigns on TV. True. Right. You can feel it when you have a heart palpitation or you've got low blood pressure and you feel a bit faint. There's a sense of it. You can get a sense of everything else. Even if it were a gut issue, you know, you you get bloated or you get stomach pains or something. Your body tells you much more loudly that something's up. But your brain does. I mean, it does, but we call it mental illness and we disregard it. You don't have pain receptors in your brain. So it doesn't react in that same way. So I think your brain is out of sight, out of mind, which makes it easy to ignore. But then we have the overhang of dualism, you know, Descartes, I think, therefore I am, which makes us believe that really the brain is just a consciousness organ. It's not about physical demands or physical things that are happening. It's just about thoughts and ideas and beliefs and that those things come almost out of the air, that they're not really rooted in the physical organ. 
which obviously they are. <laughs> um, and so we tend to just think of psychological distress as just being bad thinking or broken ideas rather than a brain that's in distress, rather than the outcome or the evidence of a brain that's in distress. And then I think on top of that, things like this trickle down. And whilst in the East, there is a greater appreciation for the synergy and integration between the brain and the body. In the West, we really don't. And what we tend to do is to really dismiss the brain. We really dismiss emotion. We really dismiss intense feeling of any kind. We have this kind of intense alike for reason and hyper-rationalism and logic. And so we think anything that isn't that is just dismissible. And I think that's deeply cultural. It's deeply classist as well, you know, that we have a ruling group of people. We think about people who um, have strong emotions as being uncontrolled and irrational. And even when we think about women, we think about emotions as being irrational. And so there's this real way in which physically and emotionally, the brain and mental health are dismissed as kind of second-class responses. And it really takes away the focus on the funding and understanding that what happens psychologically is related to the brain and its health and its underlying condition. Quite a long-winded answer. <laughs> Sorry. So the, no, it's so brilliant and so powerful. And I'd never thought about the suppression of mental health and brain health as a patriarchal response. I think that's absolutely fascinating really interesting my thoughts firing off in my mind so we've got this situation where all the statistics and the studies are showing us that this is our burning platform and yet the government's the funding is not there yet so what that makes me think is that unfortunately it's going to be about personal responsibility until the policies catch up and that's where I think your work is so empowering because not only do you share this scary picture which you do but you also <laughs> say there's much more that we can do about it than perhaps we've been taught and you know as you know this podcast is listened to by parents who are really interested in how we can help ourselves and the next generation mm -hmm. so I think it would be so powerful to spend some time together this morning talking about what is within our control around mental health and brain health until we wait for activism or policy change or something to change where we're in a point where this is given the parity that requires actually not parity mental health should be above physical health because we know the studies are there that it trickles down to the brain everything comes back to the brain and beyond that, you really need good, well-functioning brains in order to enact policy, right? We need people to be able to have the focus, the attention, the acuity to sit down and think about these issues, which is why this idea that global brain health is in decline is a real worry. So one of the things that people really rarely appreciate or know simply is that much of what happens in your brain isn't just down to bad luck. So again, with physical health conditions, so with diabetes, for example, 84% of people believe that there is something that they can do about their diabetes or their heart disease. You know, most people think there is something that's within my power to fix about it. That number drops to less than a quarter for disease of the brain, so Alzheimer's disease, dementia. Most people think there's nothing I can do. I just have to cross my fingers, hope for the best, hope that I get lucky and that I avoid it. 
it couldn't be further from the truth. The latest global commission by Lancet, so the big, notable research journal, says that now up to 50% of global cases of Alzheimer's disease could be prevented if we took the best case scenario advice, right? So we'd need to be living fairly pristine lives, that's true. But if we did so, if we looked at the risk factors that were modifiable, so the things that are within our control, then up to 50% of global cases. And that is an enormous number. Again, when we think about dementia being the leading cause of death in the UK, and that women have twice the risk of Alzheimer's disease than men do, that actually that's a huge number of people, that's a huge number of families that could be better off or protected. So there's an enormous amount that we can do. We have at least somewhere between seven and nine modifiable risk factors. Some of those seem a little bit more difficult to manage. So one of them is hearing. So people who lose their hearing have a higher risk of Alzheimer's disease and dementia, for example. And you kind of think, well, there's not much I can do about losing my hearing, but it's about, you know, protecting your ears. If you go to concerts or, you know, things like that, making sure that you're taking care of your hearing. But broadly, it's the midlife health factors that are absolutely crucial in protecting your brain health. And we say midlife because we know that certainly for things like Alzheimer's disease, even though you're getting diagnosed in your 60s or maybe your 70s, the damage starts to accrue up to 20 years before then. So in your 40s, in your 50s, the damage is starting to build up, which later becomes the signs and symptoms of a diagnosable dementia. And so at midlife, we're wanting people to be managing their heart disease risks. So making sure you're not having too much salt, making sure you're eating a nutritionally dense diet, lots of fiber, lots of fruits and vegetables, olive oil, nuts, seeds, all the stuff that you've heard of before, but it's really crucial when it comes to your brain health. Managing your weight where possible, so trying to maintain a healthy body weight, managing your blood glucose or managing any of your diabetes risk, taking regular exercise, staying cognitively engaged. So keep learning is the big message, making sure that you keep giving your brain challenge because it's challenge that helps your brain essentially to grow. And the more that your brain grows, the more resilient it is if you ever end up with something like a neurodegenerative disease, which essentially shrinks the brain. So if you build in growth, I call it the pension plan for your brain. If you build in growth earlier on, then even if you get disease or early signs of disease, you already have a much more resilient brain. So Really, in terms of big risk, we're talking about midlife. But I mean, if you wanted to talk about children as well, we could go there. I want, really want to talk while while I've got you with me this morning around depression and anxiety, because I think, you know, when we're talking about brain health and mental health, the stats are in your book. This is going to become the leading challenge globally depression. Now, what I see, and again, you talk about this fantastically in your book, is that we use this umbrella term of depression. We treat it typically in the UK and in the West in a kind of one-size-fits-all way, often with medication. And you have some brilliant ideas. And I know so many people listening will have experienced postnatal depression, Mm -hmm. will know someone who has depression, will have had depression in the past. So can you share a little bit about what we can do to prevent depression 
and then maybe anxiety if that links in and sure. if we're experiencing it right now what someone can do anxiety and depression really do link in they are what we call comorbid 80 percent of the time so they arise together most of the time one of the big theories about why that is is that the chronic stress of anxiety can make the brain vulnerable to depression essentially chronic stress is a bad bad thing this is why the pandemic is such a risk in terms of global brain health long periods of stress really is not what the brain or the body is adapted for your stress response system is adapted to be activated rarely and acutely yes this is the kind of way back on the savannah that you needed to run away from a lion and that was it once you got away you could come back down from your elevated stress level what we have now is an environment a lifestyle of chronic stressors right so deadlines difficulties in relationships maybe poverty other long-term stressors jobs that you hate things like this create long-term stress for the brain and anxiety can become one of those and one of the things that happens is that you get these elevations in your glucocorticoids or your stress hormones acutely that's fine but over the long term that has really measurable effects on the brain and the body it increases the release of fats and sugars into the bloodstream now in an acute phase that's fine because you need those fats and sugars to run away from this lion but in a prolonged phase What it means is that you have elevated heart disease risk because there's all these additional fats and sugars floating around in your bloodstream. And the longer that they're there, the more likely they are to become oxidized, which means they can then end up kind of sticking to your arteries and and to the blood vessels in your brain. There are all sorts of long-term implications of having these elevated stress hormones. And one of those big outcomes is what's called inflammation. And inflammation is the immune system's response to usually injury or illness, but also to stress. And what happens with inflammation is these hyperactive immune responses can cross over and trigger inflammation in the brain, which we do not want. And this brain inflammation is what's associated with increased risk of things like depression, but also bipolar disorder, sometimes schizophrenia, and certainly things like Alzheimer's disease. We think that inflammation is the underlying mechanism and that that's largely attributable to stress and stress comes in lots of different ways whether it's early life factors whether it's a difficult relationship whether it's a job that you hate whether it's illness whether it's a poor diet so understanding depression you need a proper assessment you need to be able to look at someone and say which of these factors might be contributing to what you're experiencing as depression. It's not one unitary disease. Your depression might be because you've got a 10-month-old and you haven't slept well for a long time and it's just created that kind of chronic stress for you. My depression might be because I've got several deadlines running. I can't keep up. I feel overwhelmed and that's created chronic stress for me. Someone else's might be, actually, they had a very difficult upbringing and that lowers the threshold for which they're stressed system turns on and activates and therefore they're just chronically in a state of depression so understanding depression really needs a bit of time which we don't get in our gp surgery in our eight to ten minutes where your gp just simply has to work out 
are you depressed or are you not? Not what's causing your depression and how do we address that? I just love everything that you're saying. I'm nodding ferociously because I think, A, what I'm hearing you say is that chronic stress is the real epidemic. Mm -hmm. And then I'm also hearing you say that when we have depression and we have this seven minutes with our GP, which is the average appointment time, it's a sticking plaster when we're yeah. given antidepressants because I've been prescribed antidepressants in the past and I didn't take them because, and I'm definitely not anti-taking them. I have many friends and family have taken them, but for me, I wanted to understand the root cause and I felt well enough mm-hmm. to be able to do that work. My depression wasn't debilitating me enough that I couldn't do that work. Had it been, I would have taken the antidepressants, I think, to enable me to do that work. But what I'm hearing you say which is exciting because I think it's empowering, is that actually there is so much that we can do. I'm interested in your view around labelling of diagnosis. Do you think it's helpful? I know everyone's different, so this is a challenge because for some people, having a diagnosis can help them. Yeah. For me, personally, my view is that it can be quite reductive. And then if you start to say, I am depressed... Mm -hmm there's an ownership there mm-hmm. and you start to over identify with this I'd love to hear your thoughts I think they're broadly aligned so it does depend but I do have my own kind of personal preference so for example I spent a lot of time working with borderline personality disorder diagnoses because I used to work in prisons in women's prisons in particular and there's an inordinate disproportionate amount of women with borderline personality disorder in prison. So it was fairly essential as a practitioner in that environment that I understand the diagnosis quite well. And you have this kind of split where actually for this group of women, having a diagnosis in this case of borderline personality disorder was useful because it gave them access to treatment. So treatment was very specialised. There's a very specific pathway to treatment for this diagnosis and therefore having a diagnosis gave them access to treatment but also because the symptoms of BPD are so kind of diffuse and difficult to pin down it helped to contain their experiences it helped to make it explainable for them like okay I'm like this because of this it's not just that you know, I'm very much in inverted commas, crazy or mad or bad. It's because of this. So for a group of people, it can be very containing and can help them to really feel like they get a grip on what they're experiencing. I think with something like depression, it's less helpful. Firstly, because depression we seem to believe it's very well understood. You know, we say, oh, so-and-so is depressed. It's almost colloquial now, the way that we talk about depression. And so we assume we know what we mean when we say depression. I think that's the risk. You know, when somebody says, oh, I'm depressed, everyone goes, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. And that can make not just patients, but also I think practitioners and clinicians a little bit lazy in doing the full work, in really understanding, okay, what do you mean when you say depressed? What is your experience? How are you feeling when you're waking up? Is it that you don't get any pleasure at all from these things? Or is it that you feel socially withdrawn and you don't want to be with people? Tell me in detail what depression means to you. So sometimes that label can be limiting because it shuts down our thinking and it shuts down our curiosity. And I agree with you. I think sometimes it can become someone's identity. They say, I am a, or I am 
depressed, you know, I'm a depressive or I'm depressed. And then it becomes, again, something that we might feel is completely inescapable. Whilst, of course, some people will have long-term depression, I think the more we can understand the foundations, the etiology, the causes of someone's depression, we're in a much better position then to tailor the right treatment for them. So for some people, it might be biologically driven. It might be that you're underslept and you're not eating well enough and therefore your body is interpreting this as a source of chronic stress. And we've seen in some of the kind of big landmark trials that if we improve your diet, we can reduce your depression. For some people... I mean, that's going to be huge. You thought you had this kind of long-term diagnosis, but actually you have a huge amount of power to be able to improve your symptoms. And for other people, it might be, well, we need to get you into a pathway for psychotherapy so that we can help you deal with your chronic stress and your responses to your early life and your early life experiences so that you can learn how to manage those things more appropriately and bring your stress down that way. So... (laughs) I might have strayed a little bit from your question, but I think the more that we really understand the basis of someone's depression, that we don't just get stuck on the label, but we stay curious enough, both as patients and practitioners. And of course, this is partly about time. GPs don't have the time to do this full stop. They just do not. But if once someone's been diagnosed with depression, they can then go onto a treatment service where they do have the time to have a thorough assessment, then we can get much more accurate treatment plans so that people can get better more quickly yeah and I think there's the elephant in the room isn't there which is the societal you know if you have money and time you are able to go and have see a private therapist and have that time that's so needed to unpick you know I think that's a whole big thing that brings up so much anger and sadness in me in that if you don't have the those resources of time and money that seven minutes with that GP and the antidepressants is all that you are able to access. And that is simply horrific that that is the reality in our country. I wanted to ask you about emotional stress because I think feelings and emotions is something that you talk so brilliantly about. And I think as parents, it's something that we talk about a lot on the podcast that we can teach our children how to connect with their feelings and emotions. So can you talk about emotional stress and maybe the big five that you talk about in the book? Absolutely. Yeah. So my big catchphrase is take your emotions seriously, because I've sat with hundreds of people and over and over again they will dismiss their emotions as being silly as being inappropriate as being overreactions people will call themselves drama queens because they've felt something and what we really need people to understand is that emotional distress and emotional pain is physical distress your brain interprets it in exactly the same way it uses the same neural pathways in the brain to process physical pain when you stub your toe or break your leg to process emotional pain. And it elicits the same then stress response, right? So if your body knows that it's a stressor for you to break a leg, then it also sees having a broken heart as a stressor and it will turn on those same stress responses. And therefore we need to see emotional distress as the kind of emergency as the physical pain and and physical injuries. I just want to underscore this because I think this is something which was transformative for me when I got it, which is that my feelings and emotions are messengers. 
just the same as pain when I stubbed my toe, as you said. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't just ignore that and think, oh, you know, I'm just going to carry on. And that might escalate into a limp, might escalate into mm-hmm. needing, you know, who knows where that might escalate. But so often, as you're describing, we ignore these messengers which are our feelings and emotions. I just started to jump in. I just really wanted to underscore it because for me, it was transformational to understand that because I used to see feelings as inconvenient and push them down and they come out sideways anyway, in my experience. Yeah, but... of course. <laughs> <laughs> so I just think that's such a powerful message, Kimberly, that, that our feelings and emotions are messengers to give some space to, mm-hmm. not without judgment, they're trying to tell you something. They don't just crop up out of nowhere for no reason. Certainly your brain doesn't really like inefficiency. It wouldn't do that, throw around these powerful emotions for no good reason. And what we certainly know cross-culturally is that many of these evolved emotional responses, well, they are evolved emotional responses, you know, that we share them with all sorts of different communities around the world. So they seem to be built in, they're hardwired in. Things like anger, for example, have specific neurons in the brain dedicated to their activation they are there for a reason and I think as soon as people get that you know that they're not as you say like an inconvenience something that's there to thwart them and if you can just tolerate them and learn to bear them long enough to understand what they're saying to you then your world opens up because then you become much less reactive and much more curious and when you're curious and able to tolerate it, then you can act appropriately rather than feeling like you have to suppress or ignore or deny or run away from your feelings. Yes. Is suppressing feelings another stressor? It absolutely is. <laughs> and I talk about this a lot because again, you know, I work with a lot of people who feel like they, if they just push it down, tap it down, stamp it down, they'll be okay and they can carry on. But A, Emotions don't just go away because you don't like them. You know, they're very persistent messengers. They will keep coming around and putting that note through your door saying, we missed you, but we'll be back tomorrow. Or (laughs) they will come out as a physical symptom. Because they're a physiological stress, they will transform into a physical symptom. That Those stress hormones will keep being pumped out and one of your body's tissues will recognize them if you don't. And what happens with emotional suppression, which is the real ironic effect, because people will sit in my office and they will say, I just don't want to think about it, so I'll push it down. And I will sit there and I will tell them this is making you less resilient, not more. So there are clinical trials that show that, for example, if you take two groups of people, well, well, one group of people and split them in two, and you get them to plunge their hands into ice cold water, and you say to one group, you guys are allowed to curse and swear and shout and scream, do what you like, you can express that distress. And you tell the other group, I need you to stay silent, please. Please do not show on your face, any signs of distress, and don't scream out. The people who are able to express their distress are able to bear the ice water for longer. They have actually greater tolerance, we might say greater resilience, that they can bear it for longer because the other group are using up a huge amount of their energy and their emotional reserve trying to suppress the feeling. And they've done these sorts of studies, again, you know, having people watch horror movies and not showing their distress. And what they found is that when you try to suppress your emotion, your body is screaming. You know, the markers of stress in your body and in your skin are much higher than if you're allowed to squirm or show your feelings in your face. So you just push it into your body. 
everything that you're saying is just I'm so excited for my audience to hear this and hopefully get your book because you go into it in much more detail in the book but what I'm hearing and so fascinating and I think that's probably a whole other episode (laughs) around how when we suppress our feelings it comes out in physical ailments what's interesting to me is so much of the modern parenting books she maybe not the modern ones but the kind of 80s 90s parenting books Mm -hmm. were really all about tactics to help us manage quote-unquote slash suppress our children's feelings so you know and there's a generational impact at play I think Mm -hmm. I don't know about you but my parents weren't really taught how to feel their feelings so mine got suppressed and I think if we're not taught it's a skill to learn to sit with anger because if you're taught zero to seven when our brains are going through their biggest growth and forming if we're taught that anger is bad and if you are angry you're going to get punished it can take a lot can't it to then learn to be able to welcome in those feelings absolutely I had one client come back to me and say that when I sat down and explained to her that anger was her emotion of self-esteem and that anger is your sign. It's a clue to you that you are feeling or seeing injustice. She said it blew her mind. She was ringing up friends and telling them, you know, this little piece of information because she'd grown up absolutely having her anger suppressed and seen as a sign of weakness and childishness. It just showed that you were out of control. It didn't have any meaning. It was just that you were a bad child and therefore a bad adult as she grew, that it can be transformational to understand that this intense feeling that you're experiencing, A, can be understood, but B, might have a really powerful message. And I say that anger is my favorite emotion because I think it can be hugely powerful and hugely powerful in a really positive way. Mm, I love that you say this. You say it's the self-esteem emotion. Yeah, because when you feel angry, I give the example in the book, you know, whether you're standing in a queue at the supermarket and someone jumps in or you're driving and someone cuts in in the line or you see someone having a fight in the street, what anger is usually telling you is that something unfair has happened. How you respond to that is different. You know, how you decide whether you just tucked at the person in front of you in the line or punched them in the face. Our responses to anger tend to be the problem, not the anger itself. And often people also mistake anger for violence. We think that when you're angry, you must be being violent. But I give the example of Rosa Parks, who, when she refused to get out of her seat, was furiously angry, but not violent at all. So it's about your ability to understand and to tolerate your anger, to see what it's trying to tell you, and then your capacity to choose an appropriate response. So I think the more that we suppress and deny anger, the more ill-equipped people are to use it in the most positive ways. People who can really understand their anger and get on board with it are hugely powerful, impressive people. And we look at them and we admire them because when utilized in the right way, anger can be dedication, it can be commitment, it can be drive, it can be passion, But we need to be able to see it for what it is and not demean and diminish and dismiss it. I love everything that you're saying so much because anger is a natural response, as you say, to injustice or unfairness. And yet, if we were trained growing up and we are still suppressing that fire, there's such a fire in anger, I think, Mm. 
it's so fascinating to me how that produces then this chronic stressor mm-hmm. you know if we're always pushing down our anger mustn't be angry mustn't be angry pushing down that chronic stressor which we you know as you've described so brilliantly is one of the leading causes of this feeling of depression anxiety it's so powerful to me because I think it's something that we can all learn to do which is feel our emotions better I wanted to talk to you about the fifth of the big five just because guilt is huge for mothers you know there's all these kind of memes you know when you give birth to the baby you give birth to the guilt and I have very impassioned views on this and I'd love to hear yours about why do we feel so guilty and what can we do about it yeah, sure. And I suppose I should name the big five because I don't think I have. So envy, jealousy, shame, anger, and guilt. The big things with guilt is that, again, it's a very unpleasant emotion. We don't like it. And that's important because we're not supposed to like it because its message is that we've done something wrong to someone broadly. So the difference between guilt and shame, so guilt being the emotion of I've done something wrong and shame being the emotion I am wrong. And they elicit quite different responses in us. So guilt often says, you know, I've done something wrong. And the positive side of that is that you can repair, you can fix it, you can repair it, you can make it better, you can apologize, you can make amends. And that tends to strengthen relationships. Where guilt becomes unhealthy is where it's overexpressed or where you feel guilty for things that you haven't done wrong. This shows up a lot, I think, in parenting, I guess, where the stakes are incredibly high, but also with things like body image and people can feel guilty about eating or about not having the right body where actually, of course, you've not done anything wrong to anyone by being in your body. So there can be ways in which guilt is overexpressed and inappropriate to the situation. And again, Being able to distinguish between those is the skill of being able to sit with the emotion for a minute or two. So again, not to run away from the guilt when you feel it or to attack yourself or to criticize yourself, but to say, okay, I seem to be feeling guilty about sending my son to bed early tonight. Now, let me think, have I done something wrong? Or is this in the context of a broader good parenting strategy, you know, so being able to sit with it and contextualize it will give you a much better chance of understanding it and deciding whether it's appropriate or not and deciding whether, you know, maybe you were a bit harsh this time and you can sit down and talk to your child and explain. And that's about taking their emotions seriously, taking your own emotions seriously and valuing the relationship. So guilt is often our emotion about the value of our relationships. Yeah, so powerful. I really love how what you're saying is, which is a real theme coming through for me, this conversation is when we have these messengers of fears, don't ignore them, hold them up to the light and explore them and ask yourself those really simple questions like you described, which is, is this true? What's going on for me here? Which just takes couple of minutes it doesn't take long does it and yet as we've been talking about I think the tendency is just to ignore that I wanted to talk to you about resilience because you have such brilliant 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 chapter in the book about resilience and I think it's something that we all need more of now so you talk about resilience as our ability to bounce back what can we do right now given this horrific, challenging place we find ourselves in, what can we do to take more agency over how resilient we feel? So 
my only hesitation is I think sometimes resiliency is misused as you're responsible for everything that happens to you. So I just want to be careful that I'm not saying that, you know, I think sometimes people say to people who are depressed, you should be more resilient. And I don't want that to be the case. But resilience being bounce back ability, Sometimes there are innate traits around that. So there are people who are laid back and children who are laid back tend to be more resilient to stressors as they arrive than children who are perhaps more constitutionally a bit anxious, you know, what you might call a sensitive child. Also children who have valued social activities, you know, it's their job to lay the table or it's their job to get the paper or something like that, but where they feel that they have value tends to make them feel more resilient. And then in terms of for adults, for each of us going through difficult times, it's really about seeing your emotional resilience as the same as your physical state, right? So you are going to be able to tolerate stressors much better if you're well slept. Your brain is an organ, it's the hungriest organ in the body. It has a huge nutrient and energy demand So making sure that your brain is well-nourished is going to make you more resilient to stressors as they arise. Having good social relationships, you know, if you suddenly had to pay a thousand pounds to fix the roof or whatever it is, whether or not you had the money, you would be able to feel less stressed about it. You'd cope better if you had someone to talk to about it. If you had someone who would just wrap their arms around you and say, this is really, really tough. I'm sorry. Don't worry it will be okay in the end. So our social relationships, our networks are hugely important in terms of our resilience. And the sad thing about sometimes the way that we live our modern lives is that we're so driven to individual success and competition that we will focus on our jobs or our shiny lives on Instagram at the detriment to investing in our relationships, but it's our investment in our social relationships, our intimate relationships that helps to build our psychological resilience. Yeah, there's that incredible study. Is it called the Harvard study that shows that actually healthy relationships is the number one Mm -hmm. determinant of a healthy, happy life. I'll put it in the show notes because it's such an incredible study. There's a TED talk about it and I think you're so right it's so easy to forget that we are wired for connection mm-hmm. absolutely Kimberly I could talk to you all day I absolutely could I think we've just touched on you know just a few little things I really would encourage everyone to check out your book how to build a healthy brain how else can people connect with you the best place really is my Instagram food and psych I technically am on Twitter. I try to spend less time there. I think Twitter is increasingly a bad place for people's brains. So yeah, Instagram's where you'll find me most or my website, which is KimberlyWilson.co. Fantastic. And the final question, which I ask every guest is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? Well, I have a secret manifesto (laughs) because I'm so concerned about the future generation's brain health, that I think every woman, when she finds out that she's pregnant, should be given a package. And that package includes, you know, along with your normal vitamins and antenatal care and all of that, but it includes access to a therapist for the duration of your pregnancy so that you have time to think about 
what it's like, what's happening, the transition, your emotions, that shift in your self-identity, your anxieties, your fears, your resentments, all the ways in which things are going to change for you. Because I think often when women become mothers, it's just assumed that it's all going to be hunky-dory and everything's fine and you're going to have a wonderful time and aren't you blooming and isn't it the best thing that ever happened to you? And we ignore the fact that they've spent decades being a particular identity and that with any change comes difficulty, resentment, as well as joy and happiness, but that it's a complex emotional picture. So my gift would be therapy. (laughs) I think that would be transformational. It would be absolutely transformational because once we understand what happens in utero around brain development and the emotional state of the mother, it's absolutely profound. And that's actually why I started the podcast, um, because I wanted to get people like you and your book talking about these fundamentally important things, which to me are way more important than what buggy you buy or how you feed. <laughs> you know, and that seems to be the dominant conversation. So I'm so grateful to you. It's been a joy to connect. I really, really cannot endorse your book or your work enough. I think you bring such a nuance and yet a compassion and this deep expertise. So thank you for writing it. And everyone, please do check out Kimberly and her book, How to Build a Healthy Brain. Thank you. That's so kind. So that's it. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. I hope you absolutely love that episode as much as I did. I think if there was one thing that I was going to takeaway and I've really been pondering in my own life is this idea that anger is the emotion of self-esteem. What a powerful idea. I know particularly as women we can so often get that message that our anger is bad or wrong and that we shouldn't express our anger and actually what I've really been practicing in my own life since speaking to Kimberly is feeling my anger, welcoming it in and then expressing it in a really powerful contained way as Kimberly shared. Let me know what you took from the episode and I will speak to you next time. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Nicole. And if you enjoy this show, you will love our podcast, Self Care Club. Every week we trial a different form of self-care and report back on the results. We've tried everything from cuddle therapy, setting boundaries, laughter yoga and many more. Two friends who rarely agree on anything. Testing out the world of self-care so you don't have to. We've even written a book dedicated to self-care practices that cost you nothing. You can listen to Self Care Club wherever you get your podcasts. Or to purchase our book, search Have You Tried This on Amazon.